Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot Slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Heckfeld. I'm your host. And our guest today is Andrew Livingston. He is Director of Economics and Research at Vicente Cedarberg. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the cannabis industry now that we're in the COVID-19 pandemic. We're recording this uh, mid-April, April 15th here. And so we're going to talk a little bit about really what's going on on the ground. What are we noticing in terms of trends, in terms of the environment, in terms of sales? And we're going to talk a little bit about what the potential implications are for the cannabis industry in the coming months and quarters as we move into hopefully some type of recovery, but then really how does this really change the industry, change how business is done, how the cannabis world uh, kind of uh, operates in a post-COVID scenario. So with that, Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Bruce, for for having me on. It's great to uh, talk to your audience. Yeah. uh, So I'm excited about this. I mean, not that I'm excited that we're in COVID-19 and a pandemic, but, you know, I'm excited to talk really about, you know, what does this mean? 
Like, how is this going to, obviously, how is the industry kind of reacting to things and how is this playing out from an economic point of view, but really how is it going to reshape the industry? You know, I think there's, you know, really going to be some impactful and long lasting things here. So why don't we start with a little understanding of, of your role, your background, how you got into cannabis, kind of the work that you do in the cannabis industry, and then we can get into some of the topics. Absolutely. So at Vicente Cedarburg, I'm, I fit kind of a unique role. So I do a lot of the economic analysis, market analysis, and kind of detailed policy work for clients in the United States and nationally. I've been at Vicente Cedarburg now for over about seven and a half years. So I'm, I'm one of the old school people in the cannabis industry. Yeah. And I came into cannabis as really kind of a movement kid. So, you know, I was super fascinated in drug policy and illegal drug markets in high school. Actually, you know, I was never participated in them financially. <laughs> yeah. I was interested in them as a as an econ nerd, you know, yeah. so listening to marketplace on the way to school with my dad in the morning. And then in college, you know, I descended into the rabbit hole of recognizing the war on drugs is, you know, mostly BS. Yeah. And from there, I, I started a chapter of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, which is an international organization on college campuses across the country. Yeah. I started that back in about 2008, 2009 or so at uh, Colgate University in upstate New York. And then kind of from there, I, midway through college, I, I decided that I was going to like do drug policy reform as a career. Um, and that was before legalization ever happened. And I always thought that I was going to work in the nonprofit world doing policy analysis stuff. But after I graduated, I moved out to Colorado and I worked on the Amendment 64 campaign mm-hmm. uh, with Brian Vicente and Kristen Cedarberg and Josh Kappel and Mason DeVert and, and all the other you know people on the ground, Steve Fox. And so then from there, we won. And I kind of was like, I can't do anything else, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Like I'm in the... And the epicenter of, of the cannabis world right now. Yeah. And so I um, I just went to every single regulatory working group meeting and took notes for the team and kind of kept that going and kind of segued that into the first non-legal, non-administrative position at Vicente Cedarburg back when we were like four or five people, probably five or six people actually. Mm-hmm. And now we're like over a hundred. And yeah. so I kind of grew with the firm during that time, got into law school and then decided I didn't want to go, you know, didn't want to do night school because I was having too much fun uh, working. And so I've kind of expanded that role over time and now run a ton of different projects, both on the policy side as as well as on the market sides for clients across the country. Yeah. And so what are the questions you're typically kind of asking or looking at relative to the cannabis industry? Yeah. So typically it's things like, okay, I have a unique extraction technology for infused products. I want to know what states I should deploy deploy my intellectual property in through a license agreement or you know which states can I look at this from actually ownership positions which states should I go into so you know I know kind of all the different markets yeah what those look like what their sizes are and, and what some of the the regulatory and, and licensing impediments are and so I help clients kind of navigate that wilderness so it's like I'm a I'm like an Amazonian guide for <laughs> new travelers and even experienced travelers, you know, looking to find their pathway because it's really hard to know what's edible and what's not. And all I do is is look at all those numbers and look at all the different regulations and how they shift and, and help people yeah. find their, their way through that wilderness. Yeah, you're like a mountain guide, you know, making yeah, sure yeah. They, don't, they don't fall off cliffs and into crevasses <laughs> and disappear forever. Yeah, that's probably more, more appropriate in Colorado <laughs> to be mountain guide yeah. than Amazonian guide. You know, maybe that's the future when, when we expand in ethnogenic practice. I love it. I love it. So let's talk about what's going on in the cannabis industry. I mean, we hit this uh, COVID situation, you know, 
several weeks ago, this orders kind of came down, you know, work from home, shelter in place. Several states declared cannabis essential businesses. I guess one state didn't, or at least my understanding is at least one state didn't, you know, for adult use, bed use, you know, this various situation where companies are kind of still operating. But what are you seeing in terms of actual kind of cannabis sales, you know, the actual kind of flowing of cannabis in the industry? What's your take at this point now that we're mid-April in the lockdown mode? Yeah, so I would say things are are both good in some ways and really troubling and difficult in others. You know, it's not just a handful that, that declared cannabis as essential. On the medical side, almost every single medical cannabis program in the country declared medical cannabis as essential. And, and I know mm-hmm. of no state that required the closure of their medical cannabis businesses. And the only state that required closure of their adult use cannabis businesses is Massachusetts. Yeah. And, you know, we're currently in litigation with the state to try to overturn that yeah. because they're allowing liquor stores to stay open, but not cannabis. Mm-hmm. And those businesses were already in a, in a difficult and struggling position before COVID ever hit. Yeah. But, you know, that being said, almost pretty much every other state in the country uh, that has cannabis is, is allowing them to stay open and allowing the storefronts to stay open. Nevada is requiring just delivery. Uh, there was a period of time that, that looked like that was going to be the case in Colorado, but you are actually able to go into stores now. Just has to have some social distancing, limiting yeah. number of the people that are inside. Yeah. So we've seen a few major things happen with cannabis. And first, I'll talk about the regulatory and legal changes, and mm-hmm. then I'll talk a little bit about the economic effects of that. And so the major thing that we've seen is very fast-paced policy innovation on cannabis. And you know, compared to other things, there's a lot of policy innovation on cannabis because we are a you know a new industry and a new policy. But mm-hmm. as I mentioned, doing this stuff for now for over seven years, yeah. and the speed at which we we saw new states develop new policies was astounding to me. Uh, yeah. And really, that provided a ton of optimism on my front. On my view, mm-hmm. is that you know rather than requiring the closure, even the temporary closure of some of these businesses, they immediately started switching over to curbside pickup. And so it differs state to state in the same way that cannabis laws differ state to state for just about everything. But essentially what you can do is you can call or go online and do a pre-order, go to the parking lot, give them a call or text or whatever. Notify them somehow, yeah. Notify them somehow. And then you'll either get out of your car, take the payment, make the payment, or they'll come to you because you've already made the payment and just provide you the cannabis. In some cases, you know, that has to be actually at the doorstep step and other places it can be on the car. The way I think about it is it's on property, not on licensed premises. And typically you always have to be within camera view, but that's not that hard considering the fact that there's a ton of cameras yeah. in and around all of these businesses. Yeah. So that's really like really awesome. Right? They, they like, did this in, in days, right? I mean, these, yes. these, they pushed this through, whereas, I mean, it was taking months and quarters and years to get some of this policy put in place. The fact that they were able to you know pivot pretty quickly here and add these things to deal with the situation was impressive. Very, very impressive. I mean, regulators were dealing with a ton of other concerns. But thankfully, when we've built up these industries in whether it's a place like California or Colorado or other places across the country, we've also built up an entire regulatory bureaucracy that exists solely for this purpose. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not like we just had it. We had to bother other government regulators to figure out what to do. It's like this is their livelihood as well. Mm -hmm. You know, their raison d'etre, like Mm -hmm. why they're there is to ensure that a, a regulatory regulated cannabis market can continue. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's really 
really, really wonderful to see. Yeah. And it's also like, it's important to put this in perspective, right? Like less than a decade ago, we were illegal yeah. for adult use purposes everywhere in the world, right? Now we are being deemed essential. Yeah. And so that is, it's heartening. Uh, and it's really, you know, it, it's always difficult, particularly in these days when things are so stressful and you're dealing with the day-to-day to take a step back and, and recognize how far we've come. Yeah. So I'm curious, do you see that as a, as a sign of sort of acceptance of cannabis as, you know, an important, you know, tool for society? Or is this more economically driven of, you know, these these states have become dependent or, or see this as, you know, an important tax revenue stream? And therefore, I, we need to keep this stuff going because it could, it could really hurt us otherwise. I mean, how do you characterize the speed at which they're moving, yeah. the motivation which by which they're using? So I see this as a continued recognition that cannabis truly is medicine. Yeah. And, and, you know, we would not have seen states across the country deemed cannabis as essential if it were not for the fact that medical cannabis is legal in over 33 different states mm-hmm. and is recognized by 90 plus percent of Americans that it is an essential medical good in the same way your pharmacies are. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing some work just earlier this week and I was looking back on some polls like they've stopped polling on medical cannabis because the last time it was polled by Quinnipiac in 2017, it had 94% approval. Yeah. At that time, that was the highest polling that Quinnipiac had ever done for any issue ever in their history. <laughs> right? And it's like, so you stop polling at that point because yeah, exactly. it's like... But we know the answer. Of course, like yeah. 90 plus percent, right? Yeah. So that I think is the recognition there. Yeah. You know, I don't necessarily think you would have seen cannabis stores close, but you maybe wouldn't have necessarily seen them be deemed as essential as yeah. quickly yeah. as we saw because of medical cannabis. And so that's where I think we are uh, culturally. Yeah. What we will see as far as your secondary part of that question of like, is it because of the economics and the tax? I think that will become apparent in 2021. And I'm, and I'm happy to jump into you know where cannabis is moving legislatively. But I do think that a lot of state governments are going to have a ton of trouble balancing their budgets. Yeah. And, and they're going to be looking towards external streams of revenue. Yeah. Cannabis being essentially the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the, sort of where we what we're seeing in terms of cannabis sales and how we see really what's happening in the current situation, then kind of talk about w- what we think is going to be happening in the future. So in terms of actual sales, I mean, you mentioned in our kind of prep for this that we've seen some increase in sales, then we've seen some decrease in sales. Give us some color on over the last couple months, what have we noticed in terms of cannabis sales and the ups and downs? Yeah. I mean, so the first thing is that what we know about cannabis sales is usually a lagging indicator, right? So there are obviously some some point of sale analytics companies, BDS, Headset, uh, which which provide some of that on a, a more week to week or monthly basis. Mm-hmm. You know, from the state side, usually we get that the month afterwards. Some of the few places that do update weekly, Florida as well as Massachusetts. Well, Massachusetts, you know, is one of the, the only places that stops yeah. sales. So, so that was is difficult to know. And what I can tell you from conversations with businesses, from listening to all the headset and BDS yeah. analytics webinars that everyone's been doing over the last little while, and then from looking at some of that Florida data, is that we saw some pretty massive spikes in the first and second week of March. So as everyone recognized that a you know the apocalypse was coming, mm-hmm. we looked to you know shore up our resources and, and 
and stock up on everything. So, you know, in the same way, you go to the supermarket and you see all the toilet paper's gone yeah. as you're driving around desperately looking for toilet paper, even if you don't need any, because you're just like, there's no toilet paper, so I need to get more toilet paper. Mm-hmm. You know, or like all your fruits and vegetables and, and all your meats and your pasta started to, to get taken up. And so everyone was like panic buying, right? Mm-hmm. We saw that same thing with cannabis. People were panic buying their cannabis. And so that created some rushes. You know, I was hearing from businesses that the first and second week of March was even higher than the week of 420 of the previous year. Yeah. Um, so it's a pretty significant increase in purchasing behavior. But the real question is, is it an increase in actual demand? Yeah. Because what we've been seeing in the weeks afterwards is a crash. Marijuana Business Daily had, had a really good article on this using uh, data from Headset. You know, and they were seeing it in the state of Colorado, like a, a 40% decline, looking at the week over a week for the previous year. Mm-hmm. You know, why is this a decline? Well, it's like probably because people aren't going outside their house to go to stores. Like everyone's freaked out and yeah. they have a ton of cannabis at their house. Yeah. They're not looking to stock up more because they just bought 200 or $300 worth of weed mm-hmm. the week prior. So they're staying home, they're watching Tiger King, they're smoking weed. Now the question <laughs> is, are they actually smoking more weed than they would have had otherwise? Yeah. So there is some research to show that when people have you know a lot of drug supplies on them, they mm-hmm. tend to use more. So availability, immediate availability will will tend to promote daily use or, or you know increase consumption. Yes, absolutely. You know, furthermore, you know, is is everyone's crippling anxiety also increasing their cannabis use? Possibly. Yeah. Is a worry that this is a respiratory virus increasing their cannabis use? Eh, that would probably be a a push on the other end. Yeah. But, you know, okay, maybe people are buying more edibles or more. But you know, from from some of those BDS and, and headset webinars in the first and second week of March, you know, we really weren't seeing increase in edible consumption versus flour. And the data before Massachusetts closed down as well, some of the data in Florida is showing that people's purchasing behaviors as far as product segmentation mm-hmm. is still similar. I know I know. I personally went out and mm-hmm. got a whole bunch of edibles, but yeah. that's because I had plenty of flour at my house. Yeah, interesting. So at this point, the spike that we saw in demand in March is, it sounds like at least averaged out with with a drop. Do we do you have a sense of, I guess, is your, is your take at this point, it was basically people were hoarding, maybe consumption rates have will have gone up a little bit, but not, there, there hasn't been this mass, everyone's getting high to deal with, you know, COVID anxiety. I think that's probably true. One, people are working from home, and they've got their kids at yeah, home. Exactly. With them all day, yeah, I was thinking about right? that one. So you, you like can't wake and bake unless yeah. you're one of those people who, you know, does not have kids and yeah. doesn't have this sort of job that, that prevents them from doing that. But it's yeah. like, you know, the reason I can't, I don't have kids, but like the reason I can't wake and bake on yeah. any random day is because I got to go to work. And so like, that doesn't matter about whether or not I'm at home or I'm at the office. I just can't do my work when, if I'm stoned in the morning. And so I, you know, I don't know if that necessarily changes. And the people who have a ton of time, you know, right now, you know, whether or not they're laid off restaurant workers or other individuals who, who work for businesses deemed not essential, they're probably worried about financially their pocketbooks and and are they cutting down on their cannabis use because, you know, they're looking to save money. So I think that's a larger question. The reality is that we will not know exactly how this impacted demand until we have really data going through probably May. Yeah. And so we'll know more about this in the summer and we'll be really be able to assess, okay, what happened? What happened across the country? What happened on a week-to-week basis? And then how does this compare to previous years? Yeah. I'm curious if you've seen any data or looked at any data of, you know, in other times of, of general economic hardship, you know, downturns in the economy, you know, disaster 
investors, things like that, and consumption of you know alcohol or other kinds of you know substances like like this, you know that if there's any correlations in terms of use or price points or uh, you know anything that that is comparable, or is this is this situation so unique that it's really tough to do any kind of comparison to previous events? So yeah, you know, I have been looking at at how alcohol sales weathered during the Great Recession, and you know, talk about that a little bit for a second. But yeah. I do want to you know mention afterwards that this is unique, and I'll, and I'll yeah. talk a little bit about why this specific disaster is unique. So with alcohol, there are some studies that that showed that demand, you know, didn't really drop in certain segments, it increased. So basically, amongst those heavier drinkers, their use increased in frequency and volume. And amongst those who didn't really consume that much alcohol, it dropped a little bit, but not a huge amount. And on net, the increase was slight, probably not at the same speed of rate that it was prior. Mm -hmm. But you know, we alcohol did not crash in the same way. Yeah. Demand for lots of other goods and services declined during the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. So on that side of things, you look at it and you go, okay, well, vices, if you, people want to call cannabis that, yeah. you know, it's both a medicine for yeah, some, yeah. a vice or a recreational intoxicant for others, mm-hmm. the, you know, they tend to do fine during recessions because what people are cutting down is their spending on vacations or they're spending on yeah. travel and things like yeah. that and not necessarily like what they're using as a nighttime stress reliever. Yeah, yeah. But this is also, this is a different issue than the Great Great Recession. And the reason this is different is that, you know, the Great Recession, it was a, a market correction due to a s- problematic housing bubble, speculative, yeah. you know, lending, and then bad financial instruments with mor- mortgage-backed securities, right? Yeah. That uh, blew everything up and dried up lending and, and pretty significantly, you know, and obviously caused some major financial institutions yeah. do go to business. Yeah. It also wrecked the stock market. And so for people who had a, you know, a lot of money invested, you know, they were looking to spend less because their total their total net worth dropped pretty yeah. pretty significantly. Yeah, their nest eggs disappeared. Precisely. Yeah. But if you had money, you could still go out to the supermarket and still go out to the movies and still go and travel. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a big issue, right? There are people who, you know, they had their investments lined up in a different sort of place. And they were like, sweet, I'm going to go out and buy houses right now because they're all dropping and, you know, mm-hmm. looking at, at it, you know, a decade later, like those people did great. Yeah. You know, the, those vulture investors that were able to go in and, and buy up those assets. Sure, that might be possible nowadays, but like no one's doing door to door looking at properties to pick them up and doing house hunting because yeah. like everyone's trying to stay inside. This yeah. is unique yeah. because it's a decline in demand across the board, not because people necessarily don't have the money. Eventually they won't have the money because yeah. we're seeing unemployment at record high rates and, yeah. and the markets aren't doing great, but people aren't spending because they, they can't physically do that. Yeah. They, and so it's very different. Like I would go to the movies if I could, but I can't. I'd go get a haircut if I could, (laughs) but I can't. And so my changes in demand and a ton of other individuals who are still working from home, they would love to go out and spend as they normally do. We just physically can't. And so that is going to change the scope and the effect and and really the intensity of this recession as compared to previous ones. Yeah. I'm curious on the, um, if you've seen any data or or any uh, indications of the black market side of cannabis, you know, is, is there any, I mean, there's always this kind of, you know, interplay between the, you know, the legal market and the black market. Do you see any indicators about changing of, you know, use of black market or changes in the black market, particularly, you know, as, as things shut down or it's harder to get and, you know, people are price conscious. Is there any, uh, any signs or any data that you've been able to see on that side? I have not seen.
seen any any of that data yet. So, you know, on the first side, usually not a huge amount of data on illicit markets, yeah. particularly yeah. in real time. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking to some of the uh, friends and colleagues out in, in New York, and I say, you yeah. know, are the are the bicycle messengers still delivering? And mm-hmm. they say, yeah, yeah, they are. Like, you know, they're doing like essentially like a storefront pickup, mm-hmm. right? They'll like come to your door. Like you don't necessarily want to have the guys inside anymore. Yep. You know, they're wearing gloves. Some of them are wearing masks, things like that. But, but those guys are still delivering. Um, you know, I, I did talk to some friends. They said, you know, for the first time ever, my drug dealer was like, yeah, can we just use Venmo? You know, cause <laughs> at this point, at this point, it's just like risk to risk scenario. Yeah. They're like, OK, yeah. You know, although you can't write movie tickets because like now it's going to the movies. It's got to be like groceries or something. Yeah. yeah. So th- that's difficult to know. But, you know, places like Massachusetts, of course, it's going to increase pretty significantly because they're closing their adult use stores. Yeah. But, you know, so much of their market was already in the illicit side because they've only have what is like 45 different yeah. retail stores open on the adult use part of their market. Yeah. And then I think, honestly, it's a little bit too for the states that have robust cannabis market. Mm-hmm. I think we're still seeing people smoking through their supplies. Yeah. And so the real question is, in April, before 420, they want to get high on their you know Zoom smoke <laughs> sesh with friends. <laughs> do they go out to the stores again to restock? Yeah. Or do they still have enough left over from the beginning of March? Yeah. What's your guess, do you think? I mean, because 420 is always a big bump, right? Everyone everyone goes and stocks up for 420. Do you think we're going to see a big spike in demand? Or you think people are basically either have their stock or they're just not going to smoke as much? I think that you will see a spike in use. I don't know whether or not they will play out in the same sort of ways at the stores. Um, it's partially that, that people buy a ton of weed during 420 because that's when they give these great deals. Yeah. The, the question is, is, are those businesses going to give these the same great deals? One, they're all suffering financially or at least they're worried about it and they don't want to cut their margins that much more to increase volume. And mm-hmm. plus there's the, there's the other question of, is increasing volume of sales actually a good idea when it's harder for you to maintain your supply chains because mm-hmm. whether or not you're vertically integrated or not, uh, manufacturers, cultivators, like they're having a lot of employees call out either because they're sick or they're worried about getting sick. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you'll see the same price rush in demand yeah. at the storefronts. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about where we think this is going or what the kind of longer term impacts of this. So, um, you know, we'll be in kind of lockdown mode for some period of time and we can kind of speculate on exactly when that will start to get lifted, how that will lift and, you know, kind of phasing and things. But we're, we're going to have some ongoing restrictions. What's going to happen to some of these companies, to the market, supply chain in the cannabis industry as time stretches on, as this impact becomes more extended? What do you think the impacts are going to be to the industry? It's going to be serious and it's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, a lot of the cannabis businesses have been operating at slim margins because of their regulatory costs, because of the, the debt that they have to service and the high interest rates on that debt, mm-hmm. because you know they didn't necessarily think that these markets would roll out as slowly as they are. And so the larger question is, if demand drops, let's say 80%, you know, only drops 20%, 80% of it's normal because, you know, your restaurant workers and your barbershop cleaners and, you know, other Mm -hmm. sorts of people that worked in what's deemed non-essential services, if they don't have the money to buy the same amount of weed that they used to. And a lot of those people are cannabis consumers, right? A ton of people in the restaurant industry consume cannabis. And if they can't buy in the 
same way, can you keep all the assets that you had previously? Or are you going to have to start shutting down certain stores, laying off certain staff? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real risk going forward. Uh, we're already starting to see it, certain of the you know, cultivation manufacturing. Yeah. And in the larger aspect is cannabis businesses can't access these federal loans yeah. and um, these federal relief programs in the same way other businesses can. Yeah. Uh, admitted- yeah. So they're, then this is because they're, they're dealing cannabis, federally legal. So the federal funds have been, you know, they can't apply. They can't use the federal funds because they're dealing in illegal business. There's some of this money is being allocated to states. And there's some speculation that some of this money that goes to the states could be allocated for cannabis business. Have you seen anything, any indicators that states might be willing to provide cannabis businesses, you know, similar types of programs in terms of, you know, payrolls and, you know, loans, low interest loans, disaster loans and things like that? So, you know, there are some programs, whether or not they're in New York or California, that are looking to provide pots of money to businesses for these purposes. Yeah. So you typically what those programs feder- at the state level are, are financial backing and securitization to banks making loans, making small business loans. So first and foremost, you have to work with a local bank if you have a local bank relationship and you yeah. have to get a loan from them. Yeah. And so there's a real question of would that even happen outside of the COVID yeah. situation? And I think that makes it unlikely. But you know there are some pots of money, but you know the states have to balance their budgets and they have a lot smaller budgets than the federal government does. And so by and large, the answer is probably not. You're not going to see that sort of money at the state level looking to really save these businesses. You know, I've been talking to the people at at Marijuana Policy Project, talking to people at the law firm, individuals at at CTF, Mm -hmm. about maybe we should consider reallocating, if possible, some of the cannabis tax revenue to subsidize the payrolls of some of these businesses that are dropping out. And, you know, I think that that's a great idea and concept. I don't know if state governments are going to act in that sort of way. And it also, you typically will require legislative action and legislatures just aren't meeting right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's a system that needs to operate is not, is not operating at this point. Precisely. So these companies are going to be under financial pressure, you know, margins already thin, demand goes down. They, you know, aren't able to make a profit, you know, that causes financial distress. What, what happens in this case? I mean, I, you know, in, in normal markets, there would be things would consolidate, you would get bought up, you would, you know, people would come in and, and find under you know distressed assets and re- right size them and bring them back to life, incorporate them to other businesses. But you know, the cannabis you know has got some interesting twists. I mean, what how do you see this playing out, or what do you think? What are the challenges to normal kind of dealing with companies in that situation when you're dealing with the cannabis market? So I think there will be some businesses that go out of business and no one buys them up. Mm-hmm. This will happen in, in markets where there's not a limited number of licenses, like places like Colorado. This might also happen in places like California where there's not a limited number of licenses. Is if you know you're not, it's not a specific retail license that's in a valuable area. Mm-hmm. You know, even in states where they have a limit on the number of licenses, we've already started to see the first businesses go under and not be purchased. So there was a, a retailer that had uh, two different retail stores in the state of Iowa, which is a small, low TAC medical cannabis program, but still mm-hmm. there are a lot of businesses that paid tens of thousands of dollars to consultants to get those licenses back when they were issued a few years ago, yeah. and no one bought them up because. They looked at and they said, oh, well, the Iowa market is not great. Yeah. And one of the businesses was looking to buy it up, but they already had a handful of stores and the regulatory agency in Iowa wasn't going to okay them to become, you know, essentially a monopoly um, in the state or, or close to it. And so, you know, I think you might see the 
this in some in some programs, limited programs, medical programs on the Northeast, where the markets aren't great anyway. Mm-hmm. They have trouble staying in business. And this will probably less so on demand, more so on the, you know, there are a ton of cannabis companies that have been relying on capital in order to continue their runway. Yeah. You know, they thought they would need, um, you know, after their build out of tens of millions of dollars, they thought they'd need maybe like, you know, a few million to a runway until they reach profitability. Mm-hmm. And what they're realizing is now they actually need high single digit millions or low double digit millions to keep running in the yeah. way that they built their business. One is because, you know, they built their business on operating margins that are problematic. And two, mm-hmm. it's that the rollout of a lot of these programs is not as as robust as, as some of them were expecting. And so when you keep going back to the well to get more water uh, and more capital, the question is right now, everything's dried up. Yeah. So you go back for more investment. You just can't, you know, yeah. you're also paying, you're taking debt to pay off your previous debt. And that doesn't put you in a good situation. Yeah, that only lasts um, for so long. <laughs> and so the, the question then is, okay, you're in a distressed situation and you're yeah. looking to just sell your yeah. assets. Yeah. Who's going to buy up you know, marijuana retail store in New Hampshire yeah. or a pharmaceutical processor that hasn't even started in Virginia. Yeah. Normally you'd say, oh, one of these big MSOs that's super well capitalized and has a ton of resources to expand their reach. You know, this is the business line they're in. Well, those businesses aren't doing very well and they're not looking to spend the limited amount of capital that they have, cash that they have on hand to buy up additional assets that are then going to cost them more money. Yeah. You know, they're all looking to restructure and, and shrink into their core markets. And so I, I think that some of these businesses will go under, or they may just be purchased, you know, pennies on the dollar by a venture capital firm that has some money and, and doesn't have a, other sorts of cannabis assets that would prevent them from being kind of conflicted out yeah. based upon license cap numbers. Because that's also really important to consider is that in a lot of these states, you can't have more than, you know, three stores, you can't have more than five stores. And if you already are a multi-state operator that's in that state, you may be prevented from, from acquiring that other business. Yeah, just the regulatory context may prevent you from doing it. Even if it was a good financial decision, business decision, there's limits in, in place. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. In terms of, I guess, customer behavior, consumer behavior, what do you think might try to change more permanently? I mean, you know, we're doing all this curbside pickup, this kind of ordering online and, you know, change in purchase behavior, how it actually kind of operates from a consumer customer experience point of view, consumer point of view. What, what do you think might stick? What do you think is going to change? I mean, how, how much of this is temporary and how might it really reshape how the cannabis market works from a customer experience. So but my hope is that some of the good policies that were implemented during COVID and, and aren't necessarily only important for for when you have a social distancing required pandemic, you know, stay as policies on the book. So things like curbside pickup, right? You know, there's obviously benefits of not having to leave your car, but the benefits there aren't huge between picking it up outside the, yeah. the premises or, you know, outside the door versus like, you know, secure waiting room, right? Like if you have to go inside, you can pay cash, whatever. Like, you know, I think that that's probably something we'll start to see after all this is done. Uh, those curbside pickup options start to be like lobby side pickup yeah. option or still, you know, inside the physical premises, just from a security perspective, it makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. But online pre-ordering and online sales are hugely beneficial, particularly when it comes to the way that a business uh, facilitates their click-through purchase process, right? Yeah. You want someone to be able to log on, have their credit card or their debit card or whatever yeah. already logged into your system, go through the menu options, click, 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 check out and be done, yeah. right? And you to 
be able to charge their card at that time. Because all these online pre-orders, you click, 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 you reserve inventory, but you don't actually get payment until they come yeah. in and pick up. Yeah. And that's a problem for a number of different reasons. And so you know, I think that some of those online pre-orders will turn into online sales after COVID, and, and that will be a boon to businesses. Yeah. You know, we haven't seen a ton of business, a ton of states implement uh, delivery programs that didn't previously have them. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that now in Washington, D.C. It was just announced yesterday. Uh, and then Delaware and Louisiana, two very small medical cannabis programs, kind of expanded existing limitations they, they had on the books for delivery. Yeah. But, you know, delivery in a state like Colorado was moving forward anyway. You know, adult use will start in 2021, but we haven't seen in that timeline expedited through emergency rules or executive orders. Right. And do you see any changes in either product types, you know, the you know flour versus edibles or other types of ingestibles and things like that or price points or I mean do you see do you predict any sort of shifts in that either in terms of volume in terms of you know where consumers are focusing or, or putting their money into I don't think we'll see long long-term repercussions because specifically direct impacts of COVID right? yeah. so we started to see the concentrate market bounce back after the vape crisis in the, in the end of the summer and the fall mm-hmm. and I think that's because once that all settled down and once everyone realized that oh this was actually just illegal black market cartridges anyway yeah. that they were comfortable buying the regulated cartridges from their storefronts again. And as far as, as how this impacts consumers, the real question is to me is what are the new policies that happen because states need tax revenue yeah. and everyone's recognizing that we need to be social again. And, yeah. and so what I hope is that what we see is emergence of cannabis social use. We're already seeing you know states start to experiment with this, whether that's Colorado or California or uh, Alaska or other states uh, looking to open social use venues. But I think, you know, hopefully there will be a renaissance of that when everyone is like, you know, tired of being in their house in the 2021 session, everyone's looking for more business, more, more businesses to come in. You know, there's going to be retail stores that are going to close. There are going to be restaurants that are going to close. And maybe they say, you know, we'll help restaurants come into power is that you can sell food, but also you can charge at the door because now you can, you know, smoke weed or vape or have an edible in your restaurant. And, And I hope that legislators will be more accommodating to that because of the catastrophe we're all living through now. And if that happens, okay, you might be able to drink a cannabis beverage or vaporize inside, but maybe not smoke. And so that will shift consumer preferences just because it will limit smoking opportunities inside. And and so we could see long-term repercussions there, but that's kind of second order effects. Yeah, now it makes sense. Andrew, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, about Vicente Zederberg, what's the best way to get that information? Sure. So there's a few things. First, uh, you can call our office at Vicente Searberg. You can, uh, I'd say, go onto the website. You can find me. My name's Andrew Livingston. And shoot me an email. My email is just andrew at vicentecederberg.com. Another thing is that I'm a regular on, on two other podcasts. So uh, the podcast Weed Wonks, of which I'm a, a co-host on, and usually appear about once uh, once a week, once every other week or so. We dive deep into cannabis policy and, and regulatory effects. And then I'm also a, a regular guest, usually about once a month, on the long-going marijuana business policy podcast, Marijuana Today. So it's one of the, the larger cannabis business policy podcasts. 
And, uh, you know, we talk everything about the movement. We talk about, you know, what's going on week to week in the news of the day. Uh, and usually I'm on that podcast about once a month. Awesome. I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes here so people can click through and get that information. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking some time today. I, I'd be curious to stay in touch as this all plays out uh, and see how cannabis shapes itself in the coming uh, months and quarters. But I really appreciate the time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Bruce. This is a, a real awesome conversation and uh, looking forward to, uh, you know, being colleagues now. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.